So we got 11 boys and one girl at this point in Genesis chapter 34. We have a lot of stories about the men of the Bible. This one, I would say, is an indirect story about men because you're like, you're going to learn about men today, but you're going to learn about uh, Dinah, right, and her story. And why in the world would I put a sermon about men when the story is all about a woman? Well, you're about ready to find out. And it's exciting to see this, and I'm excited for you to learn. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 34, and then we're going to take a break for a while after this. We are going to go into uh, a four-week series on the resurrection of Christ Jesus. Um, We're going to lead up to April 9th, which is Easter, and we are going to study about the resurrection day. Yay, right? So I'm excited about that, and it allows me to have a little bit of a change of pace. Then we'll get back into, um, I think we're going to skip 35 because we're going to cover just a little bit of 35 and a little bit of 36. Most of that's genealogies. And then we're going to go into the story of Joseph after that, okay? And so we will start right around Genesis 37 when we come back. Um, so I'm excited about that as well. And then that Joseph's story wraps up Genesis. So from 50 or 51, I can't remember how many chapters are in there. Um, it's, it's Joseph, right? So and then we'll figure out what we're doing for the summer. So I'm thinking about going, I'm thinking about doing Ephesians real quick and then coming back um, to another Old Testament or maybe a gospel at that point in time. But it seems like as much as I've been teaching Ephesians, it's time to teach the congregation Ephesians as well. So uh, that's kind of where I'm thinking we're going to go. But without further delay, let's turn to Genesis chapter 34. We're going to read the first seven verses, and it goes like this. One day Dinah, the daughter of Jacob and Leah, went to visit some of the young women who lived in the area. But when the local prince Shechem, son of Hamor, the Hivite, saw Dinah, he seized her and raped her. But then he fell in love with her, and he tried to win her affection with tender words. He said to his father, Get me this girl. I want to marry her. Soon Jacob heard that Shechem had defiled his daughter Dinah. But since his sons were out in the fields herding his flock, he had said nothing until he returned. Hamer, Shechem's father, came to discuss the matter with Jacob. Meanwhile, Jacob's sons had come in from the fields. As soon as they heard what had happened, they were shocked and furious that their sister had been raped. Shechem had done a disgraceful thing against Jacob's family, something that should never be done. Morally, they understood what was done was wrong. It was heinous to them, and um, they recognized that right away. I don't think the people of Shechem, which is kind of confusing because the town is named Shechem, and one of the main bad guys' name is Shechem as well, uh, recognized that. So... A man's role in the family. So far in Genesis, we have, every time we have a woman come onto the scene, they represent redemption. There's something that's going to be redeemed out of the situation, and often uh, they are in the Lord's will. We think of Rebecca, we think of of Sarah. Both have have redeeming stories in the Bible and how God's bringing them back and And the line is going through them just as much as it is through the the dads, which would be uh, Abraham and Isaac. 
However, like in the case with Eve, we also see where women represent innocence stolen or innocence lost. And that's the case we find this morning with Dinah. She's been raped. It is something that is a heinous act and should never be happening, um, but that's what we have this morning. And I think it's noteworthy that Jacob has 11 sons and one daughter. And about this daughter, it appears to me that Dinah is trying to fit in. She's trying to find her place in the world. And how often do we see this with young ladies that are, they are trying to find their place in the world and they don't know where to go. And she is making an effort to reach out to the local girls to find a friend, to get the lay of the land. And unfortunately, she, is a, she has attracted a possessive young man named Shechem. And just like that, her life is turned upside down. She is raped and then manipulated. Notice how that goes. Um, he tries to use tender words after that. But I love you. I need you to be in my life. And how, what a confusing story, especially in that day. I don't think we ever hear another story about Dinah. And, and most of the time in the Hebrew tradition, we find out this with one of, um, of Absalom's sister that... They go into seclusion, and they, they're not, they don't get to marry or anything after this. And that's probably what happened to Dinah in this, in this case as well. So who's to say things like that? And then he goes on and demands this of his father. He's like, oh, I love you. I need you. I, you're, you're wonderful. Go get this wo woman. I need her right now. And I wouldn't say woman. He probably said, and it does say in the passage, young gal. Because I don't think, in my personal opinion, and Baruch's personal opinion, the Hebrew language in this um, is talking about a young gal that's not old enough to be married. So uh, give me this young girl. I want to marry her. There wasn't, uh, let's see if we can work this out. Dad, uh, what do you think? You know, none of that was there. This is an act of passion that was hot in and hot out and did not, never goes well. It never goes well when you go in like that, right? So we have some red flags in the story. And first we have a young girl that implies that she was not quite reached puberty yet. I'm guessing right around 10 to 12 years old. Baruch thought younger. He thought 8 to 10, uh, which would be even more sickening. Um, she is by herself, as far as we know in the story. The brothers were out tending the flock. She goes into the village. They assume the village was safe, and that's where the men's responsibility falls, right? Whose job is it to be the protector in the relationship? Whose job is it to be the protector in the family? And the ball was dropped there. She is vulnerable, and in that aspect, this reads a lot like Eve in the garden. I don't know if Jacob was standing off to the side. I kind of don't think so in this story. But in, in Eve's story, Adam was standing off to the side because he was in earshot of what was going on. And in both cases, we're left with the question, why? Why did this happen to happen? Why, why was this put in here? 
These are God's children. Why would he allow this? All those questions go in there. So how did she get into this situation? Well, the first question I would ask is, how well did they know the people of the village? Uh, maybe it should have been doing a little bit more investigating before uh, she was allowed to go by herself. And then I would ask, why was she by herself? Where are the men on the front side of the story? The men are quick to react on the back side of the story, but where were they to prevent the problem instead of um, offering the solution after the problem occurred? And that's where the tragedy of the story comes. It's an ounce of prevention equals a pound of cure, right? If they were on the front side of the story, they wouldn't have to be, there wouldn't have to be a back side of this story. So, men, I want you to recognize these first two things from the Lord first. And first is in Ecclesiastes 9.9, is to enjoy your wife. We have, um, it says, live happily with the woman you love through all the meaningless days of your life that God has given you under the sun. The wife God gives you is a reward for all your earthly toil. Okay, I'm going to say, out of all Ecclesiastes, this is one of the only positive things he says in all Ecclesiastes. Your life is meaningless, but your wife is not. Okay? Remember that. She's a blessing for all the toil that you're going to go through. Okay? Enjoy your wife. That's an important thing to start with. The second, children are a blessing. Psalms 127, 3 through 5 says, Children are a gift from the Lord, and they are a reward from him. Children born of a young man are like arrows in a warrior's hand. How joyful is that man whose quiver is full of them. He will not be put to shame when he confronts his accusers at the city gates. What a blessing we have of our children. What amazing things they are and what a delight we can have in them. But there's some roles that need to happen. There's some roles that need to go with those delights. We can't just sit by and passively lead. We cannot sit by and passively protect because the world will destroy things that are beautiful. And that goes with relationships as well. A man's role in the family is to be what you want your children to become. Set the example. It says in Proverbs 22, 6, direct your children in the right path and when they are older, they will not leave it. So it's an obligation to train your child to be a hard worker. Train your child on how to see danger. Train your child in good theology so that they understand when they grow old, they have um, protection physically, spiritually, and emotionally as they go along. And when they get older, even though they may stray sometimes in their 20s, when they come back to it, they will understand the boundaries that you have set. If you look at Deuteronomy, there's a lot of rules in Deuteronomy, aren't there? There's a lot of rules that say, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do this. You look at the Ten Commandments, most of those are thou shalt not do. Right? Why? Those are boundaries, folks. Those are things that God has put in place that if you walk this path and you stay within this fence row... You will lead, it will lead you to heaven. You have an opportunity to get where you want to go because God is directing you there. That's pretty much amazing. So men, we have to set that example. 
train our children up. We have to live like we want them to be. So the second one is live wise. Titus chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, it says, In the same way, encourage young men to live wisely. And you yourself must be an example to them by doing good works of every kind. Let everything you do reflect the integrity and seriousness of your teaching. Teach the truth so that your teaching cannot be criticized. Then those who oppress us will be ashamed and have nothing bad to say about us. Because it will come back on them eventually, right? If you have integrity, if you walk security with God's character in your life, and you set that example for your children, and they do the same thing, when they are getting picked on, they, God's going to allow them to shine eventually, right? Um, when they are getting ignored. We just talked about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 in men's group last night. It fits with this. When you're being persecuted, when you're being ignored, when you are given the cold shoulder because you have done something that is full of integrity and maybe it's kind of gone against somebody else, you keep doing that because God's going to honor it. Does that mean that the problems will cease, that they'll go away, that the addictions go away and things of that nature? No. It means we persevere through and in those troubled times. And when we get into that, we look at Job, for our example, right? Job had, had it rough, but he persevered. And then finally, is don't exasperate your children. It says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. So when we are training our children, we do not give them something over what they are capable of doing. And we don't give them something <laughs> under the capable, their capabilities, right? So what happens if you undertrain a child? Can we exasperate them from undertraining them? And I would say yes, because then we expect them to show up and do something, or their boss expects them to do their job and they can't do it because they've been undertrained. Now, we are indirectly exasperating our own children, right? The other way around is maybe we have too high of expectations. Maybe they are four foot tall and we're asking them to clean a six foot shelf. That's, and they can't do it. And we get on them and we spank them and we discipline them and we go and go and go and go until they get it, um, until they blow up and they give up and they act out. That's not right either, right? That's an extreme example, but sometimes when you see it in the extreme, it's easier to see it in the little things as well. So, what do we do? What do we do? How do we go? We need to have integrity that they can lean on. What is integrity? We talked about, and I talked about this this week, right? Integrity is like uh, a board that we have and if you have a nice, thick board, like underneath here, we probably have two by tens every 16 inches on center for our, our studs. And I know they run this way, and 
running this way, we have big I-beams that they run between, right? And we have these I-beams that they hold up the floor, and then we have posts downstairs. Inside those wooden posts in the gathering place are I-beams, and they hold up this foundation so that we can run around and be like crazy chickens on grog night. That's right. I said it, crazy chickens. Uh, right? But that gives us floor integrity. What happens if we take one of those poles out and don't replace it with something else? We lose some of our integrity of the building. And what happens to the building over time? It doesn't give up right away. It gives up over time and it starts sagging. And it starts to give up and give way and pretty soon we all slide and we all sit next to Corey because we just whoop, slide to the center, right? And Corey's a nice guy. So, <laughs> so it's important to have integrity, is it not? We can have the same thing in our emotions. We can have the same thing in our character. If we undermine our character, then we don't have that integrity to, for somebody to believe us, right? The truth is compromised many, most often when integrity is compromised in our character. Did you take out the path? The trash? Yeah, I took out the trash. Then why do I smell garbage over here? Oh, you meant all the trash. You meant that trash. We make excuses, right? And we do the same thing all the time. And we make excuses to uh, get out of our chores. We make excuses to, oh, I was going to get to it. Oh, I was going to do it. I was this. I was, I'm tired. I got this. I have so much homework. Right? Well, you had trash duty at 4 o'clock when you got home from school today, too, and you didn't do it then, and now it's 9 o'clock, and you had plenty of time to do your homework, and you just remembered to get... Listen, kids remember to do homework at 9 o'clock at night that they weren't going to do anyway, but now that they got to take trash out, it's like, oh, my goodness, right? So that's integrity. That's integrity to find a little bit for you. So if we turn to Matthew 18, you're going to see three different areas in, in 6, 7, and 8 where we can have integrity, and that's going to help us, right? First, men, we have to be the protector. Matthew 18, 6, it says, But if you cause one of these little ones who trust in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to have a large millstone tied around your neck and drowned in the depths of the sea. Anybody do swimming lessons here? You ever have to get the brick at the bottom of the pool and then bring it up out of the water or maybe it's SEALs training or something like that? Okay, I'm still at the bottom of that pool and that lifeguard had to go get me and the brick out of there, right? I can't do that. I'm, it's impossible for me. So I'm not going to go into a situation where um, I'm going to cause one of these little ones to sin because a millstone is probably, you know, in their day, they were huge and an and a ox would move it around. So if that's tied to me and thrown into the bottom of the sea, I'm not going to cause a little one to sin. I'm not going to do it, right? So have the foresight to look out for problems they might run into, right? When Dinah was going to go into town, dad should have went and made sure everything was okay, right? And he can give excuses. Oh, my hip's wrenched. You know, I, I can't walk like I used to. Well, you better learn how because there's going to be trouble. It's like uh, the music man right there, right? You got the guy coming into town saying, we got trouble, right? Maybe he should have came. Then Jacob will listen. So 
Um, the next one is guide into truth. Matthew 18, 7 says, What sorrow awaits the world because it tempts people to sin. Temptations are inevitable, but what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting? Find those people in your children's lives and clear the path for your children. Say, hey, should you be hanging with this person? Hey, this kid seems a little dangerous. Hey, this girl has got a crush on you. You need to treat her heart tenderly and not uh, go down that path right now. You're both too young, right? There's many, many situations that can be dangerous that we don't see. It all seems like fun. Oh, it's a junior high relationship. Oh, it's, uh, it's just fun. Nobody's going to get hurt. Okay, what did we just do right there? What did I just do? And I'm obviously a professional at it because I gave them like that, right? I justified my sin three times right there. Oh, it'll be okay. Oh, it, you know, I do that. We do it all the time, right? Clear the path. Expect danger and get rid of it. Verse 8, lead by example. So if, you are, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better to enter eternal life with only one hand or foot than to be thrown into eternal fire with both your hands and feet. Set the example by how you live. Now, Jacob has done a pretty decent job of this. He wrestled with God. He lost. He wrenched his hip. He has a hip that doesn't work because he wrestled with God. Right? Now he is working toward surrender toward his Lord and Savior, uh, but he still has the same responsibilities that he's got to get done. So he needs to set the example on how he lives in a life surrendered. Okay? Next, we need to be prayer warriors. Men, we need to be praying for our families. We need to be praying for our church. And we need to be praying for our brothers in Christ. Uh, why do we pray? Ephesians 6 uh, 12 and 13, for we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against spiritual rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. The world is a dark place, and we need to prepare our children to live in that. Okay? One of the dangers, one of the dangers of turning to the Lord is that Satan doesn't like that turn. He will fight hard on the front side, right? He will attack from many different ways. When he sees that he is losing the battle, if he can get you back right away with a quick blitz, he will do it. Expect trials when you are turning back to the Lord. But persevere in those trials. So what will the Lord do? What will the Lord do? And I was going to read Proverbs chapter 1 through chapter 9, but I didn't have time this morning because those, it says, young man, how can you keep your way pure? That was our call to worship this morning. Young men, listen to my decrees. Listen to what I say. If you are struggling with what you need to do, you need to read uh, Proverbs 1 through 10. It gives you good advice on that. And it talks about a young, an older man giving advice to the younger men. But I'm going to go to Proverbs chapter 2, verses 2 through 6a. It says, Tune your hearts to wisdom and concentrate on understanding. Cry out for insight and ask for understanding. Search for them as you would for silver. Seek for them like 
hidden treasures. Then you will understand what it means to fear the Lord and you will gain knowledge of God. For the Lord grants wisdom. Right? And when you ask for wisdom, don't ask half-heartedly, but seek the Lord constantly and he will show up in that way, right? And he will show you his will, I think is how it ends. That's James chapter 1, 3 through, six, three through 8. Shane House paraphrase, right? So those are good verses as well. Parents, ask the Lord for help. Children, hey, guess what? Ask the Lord for help. We all need to ask the Lord for help because he is the grantor of wisdom. He is the grantor of understanding. He is the one that we can have and find these hidden treasures in if we ask. For when we know our roles and we discern our path from the Lord, we will find the way forward. And that is so important, right? That is so important. So Genesis chapter 34, we're going to read a lot, a big chunk here, 8 through 23. We're going to continue on in this story. And I've got to say, Hamer means donkey in, uh, in the language, so you can imagine what that, I don't know, maybe, that, maybe it's an esteemed animal in their culture, but maybe not so much today. Hamer tried to speak to Jacob and his sons. My son Shechem is truly in love with your daughter, he said. Please let her marry let him marry her. In fact, it's let us arrange other marriages too. You may give us your daughters for our sons, and we will give you our daughters for your sons. And you may live among us. The land is open to you. Settle here and trade with us. And feel free to buy property in the area. Then Shechem himself spoke to to Dinah's father and brothers. Please be kind to me and let me marry her, he begged. I will give you whatever you ask. No matter what dowry or gift you will demand, I will gladly pay it. Just give me the girl as my wife. But since Shechem had defiled their sister, Dinah, Jacob's sons responded deceitfully to Shechem and his father, Hamer. They said to him, we couldn't possibly allow this because you are not circumcised. It would be a disgrace for our sister to marry a man like you. But here is a solution. But every, if every man among you will be circumcised like we are, then we will give you our daughters and we will take your daughters for ourselves and we will live among you and become one people. But if you don't agree to be circumcised, we will take her and be on our way. So notice, Dinah is still in possession of Shechem. Hamer and his son Shechem agreed to their proposal. Shechem wasted no time in acting on this request, for he wanted Jacob's daughter desperately. Shechem was a highly respected member of his family, and he went to his father, Hamer, to present this proposal to the leaders at the town gate. These men are our friends, he said. Let's invite them to live here among us and trade freely. Look, the land is large enough to hold them. We can take their daughters as wives and let them marry ours. But we will consider staying here, but they will consider staying here and becoming one with our people and with us only if our men are circumcised, just as they are. But we but if we do this, our lives all their livestock and possessions will eventually be ours. Come, let us agree to these terms and let them settle here among us. Whoa. Setting them up, right? 
with that, I put the point, sift the wheat from the chaff, right? Sift the wheat from the chaff. Remember Dinah's age, she was not of an age to be married. And Shechem took what he wanted. He didn't think of what it would do to Dinah. And only, he only thought of what it, he could get out of it, right? Notice it doesn't talk about the responsibility or, or doesn't say that she was beautiful, doesn't say what clothes she had on, it doesn't say any of that. It said that this man lost control and he raped her. It puts the responsibility on the men. Shechem. Let's intermarry with them, and they will, then we will get their flocks and their herds as well. And also you see that he has withheld Dinah from her brothers and then pleads that she might be his. They don't see the condition that she's in right now. They don't, understand, they don't know. So I think that's obviously making it worse. And... They understand that this was a heinous act that was done and now it's trying to be covered up and they want justice, right? We're going to talk about that in the last point. And Jacob knows that he only has 11 sons. He has some servants that are with him too, but he can't match the might of this town. He doesn't, there's many more men than they are of him, and they have town gates and things, so there's quite a few people there. And Hamer happens to be the leader, and that happens to be Shechem's dad. We're in a tight spot. Jacob sees this and uh, recognizes the two brothers. They even the odds by saying, you know, if we, if y'all were circumcised, I remember when I was circumcised, and I remember how I felt. Um, if you guys get circumcised, then we can intermarry with you, which is a half-truth, right? Um, they could do that. However, they aren't going to because of this heinous act. But being that it's 11 to 300, 11 to 1,000, we don't know what the numbers were. Um, they are in a tight spot. How are we going to get out of this? They had a whole town of men, and Hamer was the leader they ask him to be circumcised. Even Jesus talks about this in the odds, right? He talks about first about building a house, making sure you have the funds to take care of it. Um, and the second one, it says, the king, who, what king would go to war with another king with, with his defending with 10,000 against an army with 20,000? Wouldn't he send off uh, a delegation to make peace before he goes? So they're making a way to even up the odds. And it works. So sifting the wheat from the chaff requires us first to get the facts. We got to get the facts. What are the facts of the story? First, to get the facts, we need to pray. Isaiah fifty-five eleven says, "Seek the Lord while you can be, while you can find Him. Call on Him while He is near. Do not reject. Do not react emotionally on this decision, which is exactly what the brothers do." They react emotionally. Proverbs 16.32, it's better to be patient than powerful. It's better to have self-control 
than conquer a city, right? So instead of reacting rashly out of anger and dealing with consequences afterwards, it's better to plan out and figure out what we're going to do so then we can have a game plan moving forward when they come at us. Excuse me. Next, we need to seek the Lord and his strength to act justly. Philippians 4.13, for I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Again, seeking the Lord, seeking his wisdom, depending on his strength to get through the situation is so important to remember, especially when the emotions are high and are going unchecked. And finally, we need to go in with a cool head. It says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 through 27, it says, and don't, let, and don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let, your son go, don't let the sun go down on blah, while you are still angry, for anger gives a foothold for the devil. Don't go, down, don't go to bed angry, right? Do your best to work it out. Do your best to be able to vocalize what you're dealing with, right? Because if you can do that, you'll be at peace and you'll, one, sleep well, and two, be at peace with the Lord. And before you react or act, you need to ask yourselves these questions. Can you live with the outcome? Can you, in this case, literally have their blood on your hands? Are you willing to do that? Or maybe it's somebody at school. Maybe it's standing up to a bully. Are you going to be able to, if you stand up to the bully, are you going to be able to stand up to the bully and, and their friends as well? Are you going to be able to do that? Can I live with the consequences of my actions? Can I live with the consequences of my actions? So am I going to be able to come alongside and say, hey, I tried to take on the bull and I got beat up, right? Are you willing to do that? Or in this case, they could have died from what they did, right? And even more importantly, as we men walk forward, can my family live with the consequences of my actions? If I take justice into my own hands and I kill somebody for doing something to my family, am I willing to live with those consequences? Taking it to the extreme here now, right? Is my family able to live with my consequences? Are they able to be provided for in things? If the answer is no, then we need to take a step back emotionally from that situation and rethink what we're doing with and what we're going with, right? So we need to seek wise counsel. When we are in a situation where we are emotionally engaged, we need to vent to somebody and we need to do it quickly. Proverbs 15, 22 says, Plans go wrong for the lack of advice. Many advisors bring success. Also, a godly man will react with godly wisdom. When we seek for God's will and his wisdom first, we will have 
that to deal with. Psalms 1, 1 through 3 says, Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the mockers, but they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on day and night. They're like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing good fruit each season. Their lives never, never wither, and they prosper in all they do. When we are directed by the Lord, we will seek his ways and, we'll plan, and his plans for our problems. When we know our roles and we discern our path from the Lord, we will find the way forward. Let's finish this off. Genesis chapter 34. 24 through 31 says, So all the men in the town council agreed with Hamer and Shechem, and every man in the town was circumcised. By three, but three days later, when the wounds were still sore, the two of the Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, who were Dinah's full brothers, took the swords and entered the town without opposition. Then they slaughtered every male there, including Hamer and his son Shechem. They killed them with their swords and and then took Dinah from Shechem's house and returned to their camp. Meanwhile, the rest of Jacob's sons arrived, finding men slaughtered. They plundered the town because their sister had been defiled there. They seized all the flocks and herds and donkeys and everything they could lay their hands on, both inside the town and outside in the fields. They looted all their wealth and plundered their houses. They took all, all their little children and wives and led them away as captives. Afterwards, Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have ruined me. You have made me, a, me stink among all the people of this land, among all the Canaanites and Perizzites. We are so few that they will join, focus, and crush us. I will be ruined, and my entire household will be wiped out. But why should we, the, the, guy, the boys replied, why should we let them treat our sister like a prostitute? They retorted angrily. Wow. Sin begets sin, doesn't it? We cannot justify our actions from sin by sinning more. It doesn't work that way. There's a lot of injustice here. There's a lot of things going on that is, is wicked. And it started from wickedness and it ends in wickedness. And I'm not trying to justify that at all. But I'm going to do my best to attempt to try to understand justice this morning. First, it's never, never a good idea to take justice into your own hands. It's always better to let the authorities, especially in our civil ways, let the authorities take care of justice always, right? There's a process that we have in place, a system that we have in place that we need to go through now. Now I'm going to say back in their day, it was probably more like the Wild West. And if justice was going to be served, it was going to be served uh, by the hands of those who did not have or the injustice was done to. So we should always seek wise counsel before inflicting justice. God says that justice belongs to him and that he will repay and there's a balance that must be considered every time. The picture of Lady Justice, after all, is blindfolded and holding a balance scales, right? So there needs to be a balance between. 
And next, as we look at the laws in the Old Testament, which have not been given out yet um, to the family, but would be somewhat followed here. Many Christians today don't know that there are three types of laws in the Old Testament. Um, and the, they're found in Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, and Exodus. The three types of law are moral laws, there's civil laws or judicial laws, and ceremonial laws, okay? So not all laws apply to Christians today. Christians are expected to follow the moral laws found in the Old Testament. And, that, and I would say that many of the civil laws are good guidelines for government today, okay? If you look at the Ten Commandments, those are good civil laws and moral laws that we can follow along, and they set up a pretty decent uh, base for a country to follow. Many countries have done that, including ours, right? So I look at civil laws more like this. The Wild West, the more severe the punishment. I believe everyone will face justice once they reach their final destination, right? When you get to heaven, if you repented of your sin, then you're still not going to get the reward that you could have had. If you go to hell and you are a murderer, rapist, or anything of that nature, the greater the punishment will be. That's what I firmly believe. I can't necessarily back up the second one. I can definitely back up the first one. Right? Additionally, we are to follow the laws that the government has established according to Romans chapter 13. Right? Furthermore, the Ten Commandments have been the foundation of many, many countries over the years. When, when countries and states go with lenient penalties, crime rate goes up. Statistically, you can see that across the world. Where there's lean um, penalties for crimes, crime rate goes up. On the other hand, when there are strict penalties and high consequences, Crime rates go way down. Litter is picked up, things of that nature. All that stuff is taken care of. On the other hand, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute us. So that brings us all to this. All that to be said is death or the death penalty, a loving law, to have in place. Having consequences for your sin um, is it the same thing. And I believe that the death penalty is the consequence of a heinous act. And if, if the fear of dying would detour my enemy from committing that act, then yes, it in that aspect, it is a loving law to have in place. Having higher consequences for sin actually allows people to walk closer to righteousness because they're in fear of the consequences. Now, can that be taken the other way and the wrongly? Yeah, absolutely. There's many countries out there today where they have high consequences of sin or high consequences of doing a wrong, and they take that and they abuse that, the authorities do, and say, well, you, you violated this, now we're going to kill you. We see this with Christians across the world. 
persecuted all the time for their faith because they violated minor laws that um, have high consequences. So is there a balance? Absolutely. Absolutely there's a balance. Because God is a loving God and he is a just God and even his consequences for sin when they are not repented of require them to go to hell because they've chosen to be separated from God. He, they make the choice to go to hell. And that is not a place I want anyone to go. But back to Genesis chapter 34, remember back in verse 7, there's this shock and this furiousness that their sister had been raped. It is not acceptable in Jacob's culture. It says nothing has happened like this in Israel. Well, think about this. Israel is about 17 maybe years old, right? You think because his first son's maybe about that old, right? They're not very old. But it's not something that they've ever taught. It's not something that is acceptable, and it's not something that will ever be acceptable in that. And it's setting precedent for um, future generations, and um, it's something that has been taught by Jacob, okay? So the scripture also points here to the town being like-minded with Shechem. Like, you know, that's not that big of a deal. We've done this all the time. We could, I don't see any problem with this, and if we do this, we can... We could take their herds and animals because we'll just require it out of their dowry and pretty soon all that, it'll be all ours. 11 cents, we can take that flock and like this, right? So they were taking the risk that they could compromise the high morality of Jacob and his sons and they would eventually earn all the flock's herds. And Simeon and Levi understood this and used God's law incorrectly to, give, to have advantage over them right? They should have reacted by going to the Lord in prayer. Could God have delivered the justice that they so sought? Absolutely. He didn't need Levi. He didn't need Simeon. Now, is this in character of Levi and his family and his descendants? Absolutely. We see this later on. Uh, when Sin is rampant in the camp of Israel in Exodus. The Levites are the ones that run out there and they kill their brothers and sisters for doing the exact same thing that happened to Dinah, right? They remember. So this is, there is some precedent that happens in, in Exodus as well. But they should ask the Lord because Moses asked the Lord before they acted, Right? Moses waited for the word of the Lord, and then, then he sends the Levites. Whoever's for me and for the Lord, come here. And then he goes out and sends them out. However, they took justice in their own hands, which is never good. And I said never. I don't use absolutes very often, but justice in your own hands is never good. But keep in mind that this setting would be more like the Wild West than urban America, right? If they don't take care of justice, nobody's going to, and they're going to get away with it. They understood that God was not pleased with how their sister was treated. However, I think where their biggest fault was is they didn't ask the Lord. Uh, you don't see prayer in the, in the last half. Even when Jacob's concerned, you don't see him crying out to God until after on, and then God tells them to move to Bethel. And God creates this fear that comes alongside and protects them because of what they've done. So he uses that act as good. So um, it does point that, that God was in it, but 
I, I don't know if you could ever justify that act as well either. So Jacob, he was looking at the big picture. He was concerned about the rest of the locals, how they'd be treated after they slaughtered the village and they plundered the wealth and they took the wives and children as their servants. And with that being said, I, again, I said, um, God uses his fear to place a hedge of protection around them as they moved to Bethel. Um, God did this after ridding themselves with all the idols that they took from the townspeople, though. So God says, clear out the idols that you've taken from these people, and then my hand of protection, my fear will go over. It's consecrating yourself, setting, apart, uh, setting yourself apart from this world. Where are we doing that? Where are we setting ourselves apart? Where are we setting that example? And God wants us to do that. God calls them to move from Shechem back to Bethel where they set up the altar for the Lord so they will remember who is in charge, who is leading, and who... This is where you wrestled with God, right? And this is where they'll dwell for a while after this. And they settle down. So now when we know our roles and we discern our path from the Lord, we will find the way forward. But it's important, it is imperative that we seek the Lord while he can be found, call on him while he is near. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the, the message today. We thank you that you, you are the God of justice. You are the God who is in control and our fate is in your hand because we have faith in you that you are directing our path. Lord, I pray that we would earnestly seek you and that we would seek you and find you when we seek you with all our heart. Guide and direct us in your ways, Lord. Open up our eyes to have a disciple-making life in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray that as we go on our journey every single day that we would ask your help to love those that are hard to love, to love those who are easy to love, starting with our family. Don't let us miss each adventure that you're sending our way when it comes to speaking up for Jesus, to living out our lives like Jesus, and telling others about the good news. Draw our hearts in close to you and also to specific people you want us to make disciples of, of your Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask by your word and spirit that you would transform us into followers of Jesus who love people, who make disciples, who make more disciples, ad infinitum. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you.